Second Corinthians chapter five. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, eternally desiring to be clothed upon with, uh, clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we, for we are in this tabernacle, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would go unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for this selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore are we always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in and in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they, may, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh. Yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore... If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Please be seated. Good morning. 
Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This word that we take up this morning, Father, I pray that we would see it as it is. The word of God, this God-breathed word that is reliable, trustworthy, altogether true. Thank you, Father, for providing the solution to our sin problem. Without Jesus, we are forever lost, separated from your love. Incline our hearts, I pray, to your truth this morning. And awaken us to the solution you have set before all men. Thank you, Father, for the cross of Jesus Christ. From eternity, you knew what needed to be done to remedy our sin problem. We're grateful for your abundant grace and mercy toward us. And that while we were yet sinners... You sent your son Jesus to die for us. May this gospel truth go with us today and each day of our lives. Pray, Father, that you would use this gospel marker to make an imprint on our soul and with it to impact our living. We would do these things for your sake, for your glory, for your honor that your kingdom may move forward. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Coming off of last week's gospel marker, looking at the problem. Last week, we're in an eight-week series here, and last week was week one. So if you weren't here last week, uh, you haven't missed all of it. You're you're in the, the beginning stages of this. We spoke last week about man's problem. That was the first of the gospel markers we we, we talked about. What is this problem? It's our sin. Our sin that separates us from God. And we talked about it in light and in context of Hebrews 12 about running the race of faith that God has set before us. And that in this race of faith that God's given to us, these things get in our way, these weights. And the call here is to lay aside the weights and to lay aside the sin which so easily in snares, that we might run the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, right? That's what we spoke of last week. This week, the second gospel marker I'd like to address from the Word has to do with the solution. You know, as you think about the problem from last week put forth, how is man to remedy this problem of sin? What can man do to take care of this problem? Now, you know, we we asked the question, and some of you already have somewhat of a good answer, I believe, to that question this morning. But I'd like you to consider what you do with problems that come your way. Anybody have any problems this week that that you encountered? And problems of various kinds, right? We're all shaking heads and raising hands, saying, yes, problems happened this week. Let me ask how you address those problems. Do, Do you tend to avoid them? Do you tend to wish them away? Not wanting to get your hands dirty, hands-off approach to problems? Or do you tackle them head-on, pressing on until this problem is remedied? 
You see a problem and nothing else can happen until you take care of the problem. There may be some of you that operate that way. You see a problem and this has to be done. There's all these other things that need to happen, but this is going to get done. This problem is going to get taken care of. You might be one that tends to want to fix everyone else's problem. You may not see or desire to see a desire to take care of the problems facing you, but you are readily available to fix someone else's problem when it arises. Problems take many shapes and sizes, don't they? Some are but for a moment. Others last a bit longer. I do believe that a problem typically, what, what I've come to see is that problems just usually don't vanish. They usually don't disappear. When we neglect them, they usually remain. A problem can become magnified. When you rush in to maybe fix it or attempt to fix it immediately, when you fail to seek counsel, when you fail to seek wisdom, when you burn relational bridges in an effort to remedy the problem, I just want to fix the problem, but in the midst of your desire to fix the problem, you have burned a relationship. Well, the problem that we're facing here as we come to the text this morning, this problem affects each one. There's no one here exempt from this problem. So what I'd like you to do is just look around the room. I'm giving you permission now to look around the room. Go right ahead. Children, you can do this for just a moment as well. Look around the room. What I'd like for you to do is just notice all of the people A lot of these people you know, some of them you may not know, some of them may look a little odd this morning, a little groggy-eyed, a little sleepy, but I'd like for you to just look around and notice, and I want you to see that the person sitting next to you, maybe that person in the row or two in front of you, that person that you think has it all together, they share the same problem that you do. Okay? They share the same problem you do. In the midst of running the race set before us, the problem confronts us. It infiltrates our minds at times. It seeps into the members of our body, our hands, our eyes, our feet. It manifests itself in words that get spoken, which according to the Bible, those words that get spoken originate and come out of heart. This problem of sin is a permeating, ongoing problem. If left to its own, it will short-circuit the race God has called you to run. If you operate solely on your personal desires and walk in the flesh all of your life, ignoring this sin problem, you ultimately will reside in a place that the Bible calls hell. Eternal separation from the Lord. Eternal separation from God. Listen, it provides you with an eternal problem. The problem doesn't go away. Praise the Lord, though. (laughs) It is a big praise. God has provided you with an alternative to dealing with this problem. Know that in your best efforts, 
You couldn't fix this problem that we're speaking of. Some of you are very good at fixing things. This is one thing you cannot fix on your own. So what are we to do? What does God say about this problem of man? What has he done to completely take care of this problem facing all mankind? Well, the second gospel marker points you to Jesus and points you to a cross. They go hand in hand. You see, God sent his son Jesus down here. And many of you know that in sending him down here, he came from heaven to earth, as the song says. To die upon a cross. You might know the facts of what we're talking about this morning. I want to awaken you to the realities of what this means for your living. I'm fairly convinced this morning, most of you sitting in these chairs have this intellectual understanding that God sent Jesus down here. It's called the incarnation. God came down here to earth taking on the form of man, flesh and bones. And he lived for a while and then he died. But his death is like no other death because his death His body, His person, He was God in the flesh. I want to call your attention this morning in this second gospel marker, not just to the fact of Jesus coming and dying. I want to point forward, as I attempted to do last week, how this connects to our living, why this is so important in our living. You see, this cross and the death of Jesus on this cross, it speaks of love and death in the same breath. It speaks of holiness and wrath. brings grace and mercy to the forefront. It also speaks of justice. The second gospel marker serves as the solution to man's problem. Perhaps many of you are here today and you have heard about this gospel marker before. You're very aware. You, you could walk someone through and give someone the facts of what happened. But maybe you've grown cold and apathetic toward the significance of this gospel marker. This is the source of the good news in the midst of the bad news, the sin problem. Jesus is truly the answer for the world today. He is. He's the answer A lot of people looking for answers. He's the one solution to this problem facing man today. And without him, man's problem will continue to spiral. And man will continue to walk around hopeless and will constantly be searching and seeking out something to satisfy. Have you seen anyone lately looking and seeking, grasping for something that might satisfy them? Paul was writing 2 Corinthians, carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's written during the last decade of his life. And it serves as an open window into Paul's life. In fact, this is one of the, if not the, most personal of his epistles. And the epistle is framed upon two words. 
We see this right out of the gate in chapter 1. Trouble and comfort. Trouble, comfort. You read chapter 1, you see Paul knew something of trouble even as he wrote. But he also experienced the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit in his life through the trouble. And when trouble comes, isn't it a great comfort to know the solution to life's most extensive problem? Isn't it great to know the solution to the problem that we have when we're going through these trials? That we can have an anchor, right? That this hope of Jesus Christ serves as an anchor for our soul? That's good news. Second Corinthians 5 opens with good news for the believer in Christ. You see, when this earthly tent is no more, Paul says we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Death is coming. In fact, end of chapter 4 says that our outward man is perishing. Anybody feeling the effects of our outward man Perishing? Huh? Yeah, it's happening. And yet verse 5 of chapter 5 says that it's He, it's God. God has prepared us for this very thing. He's also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so in the meantime, verse 7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Desiring to be present with the Lord. Understanding that an appearance before the judgment seat of Christ is coming. And in light of this pending judgment, Paul is living his life persuading men. You see, the judgment of Christ meant something to the Apostle Paul. And church, it ought to mean something to you and me if we are in Christ. Do we really believe it? Paul did. And as a result, we see him persuading men. He's writing this letter to the church at Corinth. And in in a way, he's doing this very thing. He's persuading them. He's helping them to see clearly the importance of Jesus Christ in their lives. His attitude and his behavior is in alignment with this judgment to come. In the view of his holy habitation, which we read about there, it's it's at the beginning of chapter 5. Whatever he's doing, he's about pleasing the Lord and ministering to the people. In this case, the people in Corinth. See, there were some who seemingly had some problems with Paul. And Paul is writing this as a counter. And and I believe out of that is much of his life is being shared and exposed. Trying to help them understand who he is and why he's operating the way he's operating. If I seem to be out of my mind, I'm doing this for God's sake. If I'm, if I'm teaching, if I'm doing some things that seem to be benefit, I'm trying to help you in this. And so, then you read these words in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us or constrains us because we judge thus. That if one died for all, then all died... And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What does it mean, church, for the love of Christ to compel or constrain you? 
Sometimes we, we see that perhaps as a, uh, the love of Christ being a driving or a motivating force, and no doubt it may be that and, and ought to be in some instances that. But, but really, I believe it has in mind this, uh, this shutting up to one line, one purpose, as, a, as in a, uh, one writer says, a narrow, walled-in road. That picture was, was very vivid for me. And I was thinking about how sometimes when, <clears throat> when I'm driving on the interstate, and you may have two lanes, you may have three lanes, and you see this sign that says lane closed up ahead. And you see that you go from two lanes maybe down to one lane. And when you go down to this one lane, perhaps there's a temporary wall on your left, and there's a temporary wall on your right. Anybody ever been driving down one of those roads? Where you are, it, it's, it's narrowed. It, it becomes whoosh, narrowed. The margin for error is, is slight. You need to make sure you're, you're paying attention now, especially when you get down into this one narrow, walled-in road. That's kind of the idea, this, this narrow, walled-in road. Thinking about the love of Christ compelling You see, the love of Christ compels you. You go from driving, essentially, however you want to drive, to actually desiring, desiring the narrow, walled road. How does that happen? Paul says it this way. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. Or the literal rending, he for all died. For all died. Paul connects the love of Christ... Walling him in to a, this, this one purpose now. The love of Christ has narrowed him in to this one purpose in his life. What is it? It's to live for Christ. To speak of Christ. To be an ambassador for Christ. The love of Christ compels the Apostle Paul. Church, it ought to compel us. It ought to be that narrowing, have that narrowing effect in our lives in such a way that we walk and we live not begrudgingly saying, oh, we've got this narrow. No, we walk and we live in this narrow path for we have now one purpose. We understand our purpose here, and that is not to live on our own accord, but it's to walk as Christ has called us to walk, the example and the pattern he set forth. And we do this with joy and delight. I believe the Bible somewhere speaks of walking a narrow road and not opting for the broad You see, this is his purpose. He connects the love of Christ, walling him into one purpose. Now, this is the Lord's purpose, which includes a heavenly reward with Jesus and an interim, a life lived by faith. These are things that have been discussed and talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, leading up to this point. In the power of the Holy Spirit, in light of judgment to come, a life that reflects something contrary to the life lived in the flesh. See, the Lord opened Paul's eyes to see that if one died for all, 
all being all who by faith believe. Right? He's not supposed, uh, putting forth some universalist idea here. Everybody's in. Okay? That's not lining up with the testimony of Scripture. Let's make that very clear. All who by faith believe. Notice the fact in verse 15. And he died for all. Why? That those who live should no longer live for themselves. There's an implication here. That before you are in Christ, you live for yourself. By nature, very selfish. You know, in fact, you can think about this as you're, as you're a single person. Some of you here are single young men, young ladies. When you are single, you're oftentimes thinking about yourself. One day when you get married, Lord willing, you begin that selfish meter starts to... You think less of yourself. You now have someone else to take care of, someone else to oversee, to provide for. And then when children come into the, into the picture, Lord willing, that selfish meter goes down even more, doesn't it? You can no longer think of just yourself. Paul, you're saying, one died for all. Here's why. Not just so you could recite the, th- the fact that Jesus came down from the heavenlies. He lived and he died on the cross for my sins. That's good to know that information. But the fact that he died for all has a connection to your living. That you should no longer live for yourselves. In fact, I believe there's a couple things here. I want you to see two things. The love of Christ is directly connected to the one who died. Who is this one who died? Jesus. How did he die? He died on the cross. Secondly, the death of Christ is connected to our life. So not only does his death make it possible for us to cross over from death to life, Jesus says that in John chapter 5, but his death on the cross is connected to the life we now live. I believe, church, I believe with all my heart, I believe this is missing in much of Christianity today. This connect between Christ's death, His resurrection, and our living. We have become a people very good at reciting the facts of what Jesus has done. We know about Him. We know what He did. But we fail, I believe, to exercise And live out the purpose for his death. He died, yes, that we might live and have life eternal and be with him in heaven. And we look forward to that. But that eternal life that he provides doesn't take effect once we die and are with him in heaven. That eternal life happens, takes effect right now as we are in Christ. Church, I want you to see that this morning. His death is intended to impact your day-to-day living. And I believe the word here this morning is going to speak to that. So how would Jesus have you live then in light of his death on the cross? 
The word here says no longer for themselves. No longer for themselves. You know, and you think about this. We were talking even about this this morning. Children, interactions in the home. Parents, interactions amongst yourselves. It's not about winning an argument. It's not about who's right. It's not about getting my way. It's not about me being entitled to something. If I am in Christ, what his death has done, what it, has, what it ought to, to do for me in my life, in my living this out, I don't live anymore for myself. Paul says this similar idea in Galatians 2.20. Right? I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ in me. The life that I live in the flesh, I live unto God. No longer for themselves, but for him who died for them. Notice the personalization here. Him who died for them. Jesus died for you. Have you, have you thought lately about that? Have you, have you taken that to heart lately? He died for you. There's a bigger picture, yes. God so loved the world that he gave his son. But let's, let's narrow that focus down just a bit this morning. Maybe consider that for you this morning. He died for you. That you too might live in the way that the scripture is speaking of this morning. Narrow, walled in, one purpose for Christ. In light of what Jesus did, death on the cross, burial, resurrection, those gospel facts, if you will, that are included in Corinthians 15, Paul identifies this as the love of Christ. This love is what constrains him to operate in the way that he does in his life. This love is what helps him endure that he might run the race to the finish line. This love of Christ will not let him go. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. You see, this love moves him with joy to the narrow road which leads to life. The broad road way of living is exchanged. It's exchanged because for the first time in his life, he is enabled to see what it means to run the race looking unto Jesus. The cross of Christ is the solution to his problem. Therefore, look at verse 16. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. You see, church, the cross makes all the difference. The cross of Jesus Christ makes all the difference. What Jesus did on the cross is not only beneficial to our soul and eternal destiny, but it is intended to impact how you see people. How you treat people will be different now because of the love of Christ shown toward you. The way things used to be, you regarded man in the flesh. There's a song that has the lyrics, thanks to Calvary, I am not the man that I used to be. Thanks to Calvary, things are different than before. Thanks to Calvary, I don't live here anymore. 
with the understanding, yes, I'm here. I'm in this world, but I don't live here. I'm a citizen of heaven now. Another, another rendering of the chorus speaks to him as he's singing this, and he's, he's a dad. And it's thanks to Calvary. I'm not the dad that I used to be. Some of you dads in here, when you came to know the Lord, when you were able to see, and the Lord reconciled you unto himself through Jesus Christ, he enabled you to see things differently. And you now interact and do things differently than you used to do operating in the flesh. You see what we're talking about here, this love of Christ and the death of Christ on the cross. It impacts not only our relationship with God, but it impacts how we relate to one another. We can be practicing these relationships with one another in our own homes. We used to regard each other in the flesh. We used to regard Christ. Think about Paul. Paul used to regard Christ in the flesh. He was going around persecuting the church, wasn't he? Until the Lord got his attention on the way to Damascus. And now he's able to see Christ, not according to the flesh, but in the Holy Spirit who operates within him. There was a time when Paul knew Christ in that way. Yet now, Scripture says, we know him thus no longer. It it seems as though Paul here is describing a change on the inside that directly affects this outward change toward man and toward Christ. And it all stems back to the love of Christ. The love of Christ manifested through Christ's death on the cross. There's another therefore in verse 17. By the way, as you're reading 14 through 21, you can't miss these connector words. For, and, therefore, therefore, now, that is, now, for. These are all connected. These are all connected here. The thoughts are connected one to another. If anyone is in Christ, we're going to speak more about this connection. That's what we're going to be talking about next week, the connection. Being in Christ, our union with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, as you read this chapter, this particular verse and verse 21 probably stand out to you as the key verses, stand out to you as the more familiar verses in the passage. But how do these verses help you understand the solution to our sin problem. Connecting verse 16 to 17, therefore, it's apparent that verse 17 explains how verse 16 can be so. In other words, how is it that we can know Christ differently now? How? Verse 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is born again. John chapter 3, remember that passage? Jesus speaking with Nicodemus. Jesus saying, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or the word regeneration, some big words that we see in the scriptures. These are the same kind of ideas, concepts being communicated. He goes through a new birth. He is a new creature. And being new, it makes sense that the old things have passed away. Literally, the old things have passed by. 
They've passed by. The old things have passed by. And then he says, behold, all things have become new. Behold, all things have become new. In other words, it's characteristic of this change that occurs. Behold, it happens immediately. God doesn't, God doesn't say, oh, well, let me, let me think about that. Let me, I've, got a, I've got a committee, and we're going to put a committee together and get back to you on whether or not you're in. No, this change happens immediately. Behold, old things have passed by. All things have become new. This is good news. The newness brought about for one in Christ is new. Listen, it's new for good. Long term, forever. New like never before. New represented by the presence of Christ in you through the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Your new birth stems from God's love toward you in the person of His Son. It flows out of His great love. This new birth, your new creation status in Christ is all from God through faith in Christ. All things now have become new. Your relationship toward God and your relationships with men, they're different now because you're in Christ. You're a new creature. The flesh, Romans says, is enmity against God. You now have the Spirit of Christ in you. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. And what's he doing? He's pointing you to the things of Christ, the words of Christ, the life of Christ. And this life, church, is new. It's gloriously new. Do you treat it as such? Are you living this kind of life? This is the kind of life. This is the kind of abundant life he desires to give you. Through Jesus, through his love, through the cross, through his death on the cross. If this does not describe your life right now in Christ, perhaps today, today would be a good opportunity. We talk about responding to the text, taking actions from the text. Perhaps there needs to be repentance today of sin in your life and turning to Christ in faith, acknowledging that your position in Christ is not reflecting your behavior. The way you're living is not in accordance, in alignment with the life Christ died for to give to you. See, repentance is not a one-time deal, is it? Repent. Perhaps we need to do that today. Paul, Paul is quick to remind us. He, he's quick in verse 18. He reminds us that all things... Now, now all things... He's just talked about all things have become new. And he says, now, now, now all things are of God. Let, let's be reminded. All things are of God. Remember that your new creation status is of God. What does that mean? What, does that, what ought that do to us and for us? That understanding that all things are of God. 
It ought to help us understand that our relationship with Christ is not based upon any merit of our own. You and I, we cannot do enough to make ourselves likable to God. We can't compile this list over here and say, because I've done all of these good things, therefore I'm in good stand with the Lord. No. Paul's reminding us all things are of God. He's the one behind all of this. This is his idea. This is his plan. This is his initiative. We are responders to his initiative. Remember that you were blind and now you are enabled to see. Remember that you were once lost and now you were found. You were found. You were wretched in his sight at one time. Ephesians says you were a child of wrath. The problem of sin entangled you on a regular basis, but now you are the recipient of God's redeeming love. And the problem of sin, while there is still this lingering sin nature present in this earthly body, in this tent, the problem of sin has encountered a solution. The love of Christ through the cross, through his death on the cross, has taken care of man's sin problem once and for all. Amen. That's good news. In fact, the Hebrew writer, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews for just a moment. Go ahead. If you have your Bibles, you can turn. It's okay. You can turn. You can, you can move the pages. Hebrews chapter 10. And I'll start reading in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest, talking about an earthly priest, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Remember that? That, that? Every year the high priest would go in and he would make a sacrifice annually for the sins of all the people. Remember that? That's, that was the practice. But notice here it says, in offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never, the idea of never, not even, not even at any time, can't happen, can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, this man, after he had offered, how many? One. One sacrifice. He offered one sacrifice for sins. That was why he did it. For sins. Forever. That means this has to do with your sins in the past, your sins right now in the present, and any sin yet to come in the future. This one sacrifice by this man named Jesus takes away your sins forever. Listen. He sat down then at the right hand of God. From that time waiting until his enemies are made his... By the way, he's coming back. In case you didn't know, he is coming back. He's coming back. Look at verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever... There's the word again, forever. He's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Those who are being set apart. Those who are narrowed and and they're delighting, taking joy and walking in that narrow road with one purpose. Church, this is good news. This is what Jesus has done. This is what the cross is about. Jesus has fully satisfied the debt I owed to God for my sins. Let's keep reading. Keep looking at the text. Look at verses 19 and 20. All 
or 18, I guess. We didn't finish 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ. It's almost that is. It's giving us further explanation on what he's just spoken. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. That may be a line you want to underline. If you write in your Bible or just take notes, not imputing their trespasses to them. Hold on to that one. Hold on to that one. And it's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Key word here is reconcile. You see reconcile in verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20. I want you to notice in the text that God is the active agent. Always in reconciliation with man. God reconciles man. When it's used in the passive voice, man is always the one being reconciled by God. He's being reconciled. God reconciles man. Let's be clear on that. God's love provided the means and basis for man's reconciliation to God against whom he'd sinned. The writer says that the point made by Paul here is that God needs, God, God needs no reconciliation, church. Do, do, we, do we understand that? Are we clear on that? God needs no reconciliation, but he is engaged in the great business of reconciling us to himself. And here again we go back to the problem. The writer said that human sinfulness created the problem. And this sinful condition had to be dealt with before there could be any reconciliation. We're talking about a holy, perfect, righteous God. Something has to be done with this sin problem. Because the two don't mix together. He's not just going to embrace that and bring it all into the mix. Because he's a holy God. Sin has to be accounted for, has to be reckoned. Is there a need for reconciliation? Yes. Because of our sin problem. In case you're doubting or wondering that you have a sin problem. Isaiah 59, I believe, is helpful. In those first two verses of Isaiah 59, listen to these words. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. What separated you from God? Your iniquities, your sin problem. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The verb here, I find this helpful. There was a writer that kind of just walked through the process, if you will, And and from a biblical perspective, I I like the handles that he gives here, I believe are helpful. The word itself, as we think about reconciling, what it means to be reconciled, it it means primarily this idea to exchange. And hence to to change the, the relation of hostile parties into a relation of peace. In the Christian sense, in terms of what we're speaking to here this morning, it's the change in the relation of God and man which is affected through whom? Christ. And so what happens then in this process of reconciliation? First and foremost, there's this movement of God toward man. 
Movement of God toward man with a view toward what? To break down man's hostility, to commend God's love and holiness to him, and to convince him of the enormity and the consequence of his sin. It's God who initiates this movement in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So first and foremost, it's a movement of God toward man. But then we see, the writer says, secondly, a corresponding movement on man's part. Remember, we're not the initiator. God's the initiator. We're the responder. So there's a corresponding movement on man's part toward God. And what's he doing here? He's yielding to the appeal of Christ's self-sacrificing love. The love of Christ compels us. He's laying aside the weights, laying aside his enmity. He's renouncing his sin. He's turning to God in faith and obedience. It's what John chapter 1 says um, when he uses the word receive and believe. Thirdly, there's a consequent change of character in man. So we have God taking the initiative. We have man being the responder. And then there's a consequent change of character. See, the the covering, the atonement, the forgiving, the cleansing of sin. This is a thorough cleansing. A new way of living. It's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 is all about. New creation. The character of man now is different. That's the consequence of what God has done in reconciling you unto himself through Jesus Christ. But then lastly, there's this corresponding change of relation on God's part. Because you see now, the one thing that had been separating you from God is no longer there. God has reconciled you unto himself. And so now, this relationship, God can now receive you into fellowship and let loose upon you all of his fatherly love. First John chapter 1 talks about this, being in the fellowship. Oh, church, this is good news. This is nothing short of God's amazing grace. Notice what the text says. God has reconciled you to himself through Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus. God's means of reconciliation is through His Son, Jesus. No other means of being reconciled. There there are no other means. No other route to restore the enmity between you and God. Only through Jesus can man be reconciled. That word rubs against the culture in the wrong way, church. Our our world around us doesn't like that message. Our world around us is willing to receive that message as long as we can say, and someone else or something else as the way. I'm okay with that as long as you allow me to have mine. No, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Because you see, we're not about winning an argument. We're not about our, getting our way. We're about standing upon the promises of God. Standing upon the sure word and testimony of God. His word is true, is it not? It's true. If it's true, we stand upon what it says. And what it says is that Jesus is the only way. God reconciled you unto himself through Jesus Christ. That's how it happened. Notice what else the text says. Not only has God reconciled you, but he has given you the ministry of reconciliation. He's given you the ministry. You know what? The fact that he would give us anything is amazing. 
I mean, we talk about salvation and how wonderful salvation is. But here we see, not only has he reconciled us to himself through Jesus, but he has also given you ministry of reconciliation. And he's going to elaborate on that here in, in verse 20. But for now, but for now, I want you to see and consider what this ministry involves. Look at verse 19. That is, gives us some more insight here, that is... That God was in Christ reconciling the world. Remember verse 18, he says, All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Now, he says, God, this is, God was in Christ. He's explaining the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Are you a participant in this ministry given to you, being in Christ? Are you a participant? It involves speaking to others, yes, but it's more than words. It's your life witness too, isn't it? The ministry of reconciliation, one writer says, is not telling people to make peace with God. Sometimes we see this verse as simply our role as being a peacemaker. Yes, there are passages that speak to us and the need for us to be a peacemaker in situations. But the ministry of reconciliation is not telling people to make peace with God, but telling them that God has made peace with the world. Do you see the difference? Because in telling them they need to make peace with God, we're telling them and giving them a slightly false, false information here. Because, go back to what we said earlier. Who's the initiator? God. Who's the responder? Man. What are we communicating and how are we telling, what are we saying? God has made peace with the world. That's the message. How does God reconcile the word to himself? How does he do that? What's at the core of that message and that ministry? Well, the word says not imputing their trespasses to them. You know, if you think through scripture, you're reminded in Romans chapter 5, our sin goes back to a man named Adam. Right? Remember that? Sin entered the world through one man. And that sin, through that sin came death. And death spread to all men because all sin. Romans 5 verse 12. So because of his sin, Adam's sin, our representative, we all sin. But later on down the road, in fact, it was from eternity in God's perspective. But for, for us, and as we're reading, there was another man, representative, Jesus. And the Bible says that by his act of obedience, many will be made righteous. We see here, in verse 19, this idea of imputing, not imputing their trespasses to them. This is so important and so critical to our understanding here. Not imputing. How does he do this? What's this all about? How can a holy, perfect, righteous God not reckon or impute sins? How does he not count sin? Doesn't sin matter to him? Yes, it does. And this is an amazing love that we're speaking of right here. A love that went to the cross and died. Notice Paul does not say, by overlooking your trespasses. Doesn't say that. See, one writer says God's mercy 
cannot be vindicated by injustice. (laughs) Not counting trespasses is one result of reconciliation. Not imputing their trespasses, not putting them on their account. So yes, the, the trespasses are imputed. However, not to the sinner. But to Christ. The sinner's substitutionary, sufficient sacrifice. This is, this is the good news. Christ, our substitute, took on our sin at the cross. Through his death, taking our sins upon himself in the flesh at the cross. The the idea is that God's reconciliation of sinful men who receive the reconciliation by grace through faith results in the canceling of the debt they owe God because of their trespasses. And writer says, not counting one's trespasses is also a picture. Listen, it's also a picture and it's also connected with God's forgiveness. Which pictures his removal of our sins away. One other thing that that writer adds, I believe is helpful here for our understanding of this second gospel marker, this good news, is that the flip side of not reckoning is that he was forgiving or pardoning. Pardoning, another word that's used. He was pardoning their trespasses against him. So stated another way, we'd say that the means of reconciliation, the means is, is is the forgiveness of sins. He has forgiven us because of what God has done. Verse 20, now says, he says, now then, verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. Remember that walled-in narrow purpose. That's, that's what we are. That's our purpose. We're ambassadors for him, Paul says. As though God were pleading through us. How does God plead through us? Well, if we're in Christ, we know that we have the spirit of Christ in us. And we know that the Spirit, according to the Word, knows the things of God. And so he speaks the words of God and points us to the things of God. God pleading through us, through the Spirit of Christ. We implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Literally that phrase, get reconciled to God. And oh, by the way, do it right now. That's kind of the idea. The time of being reconciled to God. Right now. Now. An ambassador is a representative of one nation sent to another nation to promote goodwill, peace efforts. An ambassador for Christ is a representative or a witness, Acts 1.8, a witness for Jesus, one who is mindful of his heavenly citizenship even while living here in this world. An ambassador for Christ understands this imperative, urgent nature behind his ministry. I'm going, I'm walking out now on behalf of the Lord, calling men to get reconciled to God now, showing through his life this ambassador is and explaining as the Spirit enables him to explain this word of reconciliation given to him, that God has made peace with the world through his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, church, let me, let me encourage you in this. 
Because we may be tempted in our communication efforts to say and to speak that God has reconciled the world. He's made peace with the world. And we may be tempted to stop right there. We need to keep going. We need to tell them through what means. It's the means of Jesus Christ. That's how he has made that peace. That's how he's reconciled the world unto himself. Through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. We're about done. It's connected to verse 20. It helps explain why others need to get reconciled to God. It helps explain and confirm our message as ambassadors. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A lot, a lot there. A lot of words there. For he. We're speaking of God. That's God. This great plan of reconciling man to himself is God's work, God's initiative. He chose us, in fact, Ephesians 1 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I don't understand that, but I believe it to be true. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He made him who knew no sin. The text here gives us a, a, a picture, an, an open look at Jesus himself had the realization, the understanding that he knew no sin. John, remember, remember the passage in John chapter 8, and they're all over him about these, all these different things, about who he is. Come on, tell us who you are. And they keep talking to him, and they keep complaining, and they keep doubting. And Jesus says, which of you convicts me of sin? I don't recall any, any answers to that question in the scripture. No one said a word. Think about that. No one convicted him of sin. We see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22... Reference to him being without sin. We see in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. Reference to him being without sin. We see 1 John chapter 3 verse 5. Reference to him being without sin. Hebrews 4.15. The Bible is filled with passages that tell us Jesus was without sin. Tempted as we were, the Hebrew writer says, yet without sin. He made him who knew no sin to be. The, word to be. the words to be are literally not in the original text. It, sin. He, he was sin representative for us. Just as in Adam, he was our representative. <laughs> Christ is our representative. Taking on our sin. The one who knew no sin represented us in the arena of sin. He went into the arena, essentially. Took that upon himself. He had no sin, but he took it upon himself. He became, here again, the reference to our substitute. We need to understand the importance of Christ being our substitute. He stepped in to accomplish and to do the one thing we could never do on our own. By one man's obedience... Many will be made righteous. Just as one man's, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Romans 5, 19, right? So also by one man's obedience, Jesus, that is, many will be made righteous. And this is the message of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 
God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, our substitute. But why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. I'd like to just turn your attention to a few passages in Romans that I believe supplement this. If you turn to Romans chapter 4, I want to read verses 7 and 8. Actually, starting 5. To him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. We keep moving in in, in Romans chapter 4. Go to verses 21. Verse 21, being fully convinced, talking about Abraham, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him, to Abraham, for righteousness. Now it was written, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Listen, this is good news because this applies to you and to me. Not just for Abraham. This imputing that we're talking about, this is for us as well. Also for us, verse 24, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him. Who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, from the cross on which he died. He was buried three days later, the Bible says, he was raised who was delivered up because of our offenses. Because of our offenses. And was raised because of our justification. Look at Romans 5, 10. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled. There's the word reconciled. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. The statement is is not if it happened. No, since it happened, right? Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What's the result? what's What's the output that ought to come from our lives as a result of his reconciliation? Joy, rejoicing in what he's done for us. Let me leave you with one other passage. Romans 3. This righteousness of God. But now the righteousness of God, verse 21, apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, here it is, through faith in Jesus Christ. You see any other names there? No, it's just Jesus Christ. Through, to all, and on all who what? Who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith at the cross to demonstrate His righteousness, to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Church, this is good news of the gospel. God made him 
who had no sin to be sin for you. To take care of this problem. We've talked about this problem of sin. And today, I hope and I pray that the Lord is opening our eyes to be able to see that this problem has a solution. Your problem can be remedied today. This gospel marker is one to hold on to each day. What God has done for you through Jesus Christ. To those who are in Christ, His great love, thinking about His great love toward you, His reconciliation work, His imputing of your sins to His only begotten Son, that you might be pardoned, that you might be forgiven, that you might be made righteous. And when God looks down, He sees you. When God sees you, He doesn't see anyone but His Son and the blood of His Son covering you. That's the only way we're made righteous, church. Through what Jesus did. Through what Jesus accomplished. There may be some of you here who are outside of Christ. The call this morning from the text. Get reconciled with God. Right now, in fact, if you turn the page to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If there is someone here who does not, has not known Christ as Lord, Christ as Savior, Christ as the one who is going to be with us, walk with us, not only this heavenly reward awaits, not only the presence of Jesus Christ awaits us, The Bible tells us that when we believe and receive, when God opens our eyes and opens our ears to hear this good news message and we respond to him in faith and we surrender ourselves to him, that he will hear from heaven. That's good news. Church, I want to encourage you as you are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Those of you who are in Christ, be an ambassador. Be the ambassador that he's called you to be. And let's encourage each other in the body to be the ambassadors that he's called us to be. He's given to us this ministry of reconciliation. Let's be about making sure the world around us knows that this God we serve is a God who has made peace already with the world. And let's live and speak as the Spirit enables us to speak about this good news message, this second gospel marker, the solution to our sin problem. It's Jesus. It's the cross of Christ. It's good news, church. Amen? Good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. This word that provides hope. This word that provides encouragement. Provides a source for our living. It shows us, Lord, how we're to live and how we're to walk. It gives us purpose and meaning to our life. That we're not just here for some random chance. But Lord, you have created us. You have made us. 
Father, you have called us to live this abundant life. To be able to see that our life here is but a mist. We're here for a while and we're gone. And Father, in the meantime, while we're here, Father, I pray that each one of us would steward our time well. That as we are able to see this problem that, that, that surrounds us, the problem that remains in us, in part, at least in this sinful nature, Father, I pray that we would come to see that you have provided a sufficient solution that has taken away our problem. I pray, Father, that we would receive the solution that you've provided for us. Thank you for your reconciling work, drawing men unto, your, unto yourself. Thank you, Father, that you made your son Christ our sin representative so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Oh, Father, thank you for that good news. May we each day rejoice in that good news. May we be mindful of speaking and sharing that good news. Help us to be bold as your ambassadors, I pray, for Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.